Greetings, everybody. We've got some exciting news to share with you before we get our interview with Leo Panich kicked off today. We have tweaked our Patreon tiers to reflect some new developments that we're going to be launching and revealing over the course of the coming weeks. The $5 Patreon tier will not change. You'll continue getting access to our B-sides, where we save our hottest hot takes for our patrons. That clocks in at $5 per month. As always, we try to get two to four of those B-sides out per month. We have a new $10 tier, and that will get you access to our brand spanking new The Weekly Rundown Podcast. And that is going to be a show where we cover the most important stories of the day from a, a socialist perspective, as you would come to expect. There are a lot of news shows out there. You know, you can catch them from the BBC, from CNN, from NPR, or what have you. But none of them cover the stories of the day from a socialist perspective. And we saw the gap, and we're going to be filling it in the coming weeks. That show will start next week. And if you're a current patron, be sure to bump up your contribution to $10 per month in order to get access to that. If you're not a patron and you'd like to get access to our B-sides, as well as the weekly rundown, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash that subscribe button. The final reward tier is going to be the working class heroes. And that is the reward tier for the people who have taken us up on our request to donate one hour's worth of their wage per month. And that will get you access to the B-sides. You'll get access to the weekly rundown. And in addition, for your generosity, you will have access to our book club that we're going to be starting. That's going to be every other month. We're going to feature a title that is instrumental to the kind of politics that we're pushing here on DPS. And timely for today's show, I wanted to announce this today because the first book that we're going to be offering to our working class heroes level is The Socialist Challenge Today, Syriza Sanders Corbin, and that's written by Leo Panich and Sam Gendon. We talk about that book and the topics therein extensively on today's show. So uh, head over to patreon.com slash deadpunnits and be sure to donate one hour's worth of your wage and you'll get access to that. Now that clocks in technically at $15 per month, but we recognize in the neoliberal hellscape that we find ourselves in, not everybody makes $15 uh, per hour. And, uh, you know, most of us probably don't make $15 per hour if you find yourself in the downwardly mobile millennial generation. So just donate whatever you can, send us a message, and I'll make sure that you get access to that reward tier. Uh, we're trying to run this in, an, in as egalitarian fashion as possible. Solidarity has no dollar amount. Uh, it's all about the sentiment. That's what we care about here at Dead Pundit. So anyway, wanted to give you all that news it's a lot of exciting developments. There's going to be a hell of a lot of content coming out of Dead Pundits in the coming months and years on a weekly basis. And uh, continue supporting the show. Thanks to current patrons and future patrons alike. We cannot do this without you. We definitely don't have that Koch Brothers money or that Soros money rolling through the doors. All right, on with the show. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Punnett Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And joining me on the program today, once again, is Leo Panich. Leo is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at York University in Toronto. And he has been heavily engaged and involved in the goings-on of the UK labor left over the past several months and for most of his career at that. Leo Panish, thank you so much for joining us on Dead Pundits. 
Hi, Adam. Glad to be back. So you cut your teeth on the UK Labour Party uh, since from the very early days of your career. Uh, some of the changes and transformations inside of the Labour Party uh, coming from the socialist left, you are now witnessing later on in life. This has to be a quite exciting, perhaps even emotional moment for you. Tell us a little bit about what you've discovered in your recent travels to London. What are the prospects uh, facing the Labour shadow government in the midst of what can only be described as a legitimacy crisis in Theresa May's Tory party. Yeah, it's it's that legitimacy crisis that uh, has produced this remarkable resurgence of a democratic socialist current inside the Labour Party, uh, rather than a social democratic one, which it's always been. And, you know, there was first the legitimacy crisis of neoliberalism as in its soft version, uh, in the Bill Clinton, Tony Blair version, which uh, blew up in everyone's face, especially in Britain, given the centrality of the city of London in the British economy it, with the 2008 crisis. And then with the election in the wake of the illegitimacy of the third way, as the Clinton Blair version of neoliberalism was known. Um, you got the austerity-led Tories coming in in 2010, and this uh, it has blown up as well. After a decade of the crisis dragging on, with the austerity making it so much worse for so many people uh, in terms of inequality, in terms of uh, the deterioration and the loss of you know, basic public services. I mean, not only the deterioration of the NHS uh, through its marketization and underfunding the National Health Service, no, but even the closure because of the way in which funding was denied to local government, the closure of uh, fire departments and, and public libraries, mm-hmm. um, you know, even at that level. So, there is an enormous uh, illegitimacy, uh, and that was expressed, as it has been in so many places around the world, in terms of the illegitimacy of the center-left, i.e. the social democratic parties, including the Labour Party in Britain under its former leadership, uh, and and uh, the center-right parties, uh, uh, which has opened up, as in the case of the Republican Party, in the United States and the Tory party in Britain, room for what I call patriotic scoundrels. Hmm. You know, you remember that great phrase, patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel mm-hmm. right. from the American Revolution. Well, these patriotic scoundrels, uh, you know, are, are entirely cynical people who use xenophobia uh, to uh, rush into this vacuum. Uh, on the right, created by the legitimacy crisis of neoliberalism. And in Britain, uh, that takes the form of these uh, imperial dreams that are left over from the British ruling classes, uh, British Empire, and and uh, illusions that there's some form of British grandeur associated with it, which has always been there in the Tory party and which is viscerally anti-internationalist, even in a liberal sense, and has been viscerally viscerally anti-EU, even though the European Union was such a vehicle for neoliberalism 
these people uh, are above all interested in making Britain great again. Right. Now, we, can, we Canadians are blessed with never having been an imperial power. So even a right-wing politician who comes along and says, make Canada great again would be laughed off the stage. <laughs> uh, but in the United States and Britain, you can have uh, patriotic scoundrels like Trump and Boris Johnson who will play that card. And they can gain working class voters, as, as they do in the United States, of course, because to some extent class formation in these countries was always embedded in national identity creation. So that was picked up uh, in the UK as the Tories were embedded in the EU, always with a certain distance because of this right wing set of xenophobes within the party. It was a special status inside Europe, but it was picked up by the UK Independence Party, which took votes away from the Tories, also took votes away from Labour in the most surprising places like Wales. Uh, pointing, of course, to migration as being uh, caused not by capital's attempt to secure cheap labor, uh, but rather by EU political regulation or judicial regulation. And they, that put the scare into the Tory party leadership. And they thought that they could do away with that by calling a Brexit referendum. Right, right which would uh, uh, they, the, uh, those who are in favor of leaving would lose, but would also scare the Europeans enough that they would reinforce Britain's special status and be willing to go along with uh, not requiring Britain to adhere to all of the European rules in terms of uh, the free migration of, of EU citizens. Right. Now that backfired, trying, that attempt to... Uh, both stave that, off. Backfired, that backfired horribly, and uh, those mainstream Tory politicians like May herself, uh, who wouldn't have wanted to leave the European Union, but we you know would have wanted the special status, right. were then stuck holding this very uh, unfortunate baby, as far as they were concerned. Yeah, the hot potato, for sure. And they were trying to hold the party together. Yeah. Uh, in a similar way to the way Ed Miliband was trying to hold the Labour Party together after he broke with uh, Blair and New Labour, mm -hmm. uh, with the majority of his MPs still being New Labour Blairite MPs or close to it. So she was stuck with this and is stuck with Brexit. And it's an appalling mess because uh, it is so tremendously difficult to extract the British economy from its links to the European Union. That partly has to do with over four decades of uh, trade and uh, legal and regulatory regulation. But it also has to do with the older role that the City of London, the financial sector in Britain, the Wall Street of Europe, played uh, since the 1960s in binding the European Union into global capitalism uh, and and as led by Wall Street and and the American state. So, you know, uh, the city of London switched its allegiance from the pound sterling to the dollar in the 1950s. Uh, and it became the site by the early 60s of what was known as the euro dollar market and then the euro bond market. And to this day, uh, you know, most uh, trading in, in the euro as an exchange rate takes place uh, in London. Uh, Euro bonds are floated there. Uh, it's the deep ties and expertise 
that centuries of British merchant banking have given them that have them play that kind of role. And extricating yourself from that is uh, very, very difficult. But of course, it's also extricating yourself from the fact that so much of British industry and agriculture is now so deeply integrated into uh, European uh, consumer markets. So it's truly a quagmire that you just pointed to there. Uh, it's one that's historically constituted uh, in the contradictions of the British state and their accumulation strategies that they have developed for themselves over the past 50 plus some odd years, developing, a, as you just uh, laid out, a special status, not only with the EU, but also with the American state in terms of being a kind of transition, a hub, a financial hub of, of international, uh, transnational business between the United States and the Euro markets and elsewhere. It's become an international hub of speculation, it's sort of, uh, you know, not only in terms of productive investment, but, uh, but speculative investment. I know you'd, you'd probably like to swoop in and correct me in terms of the distinction between speculation and accumulation there, and rightfully so. But uh, it's, 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 truly, it's truly a Goliath to contend with for any government in this transition. And with that being said, Theresa May has faced uh, the numerous resignations of various cabinet ministers over the, the past several days alone. Uh, she will quite likely face a vote of no confidence coming from her own party in the coming days or weeks. And so, you know, a lot of this uh, is, is very dynamic. We could see many changes in the coming days and certainly weeks. Jacob Rees-Mogg has, <laughs> in his own way, spoken very confidently about the Tory party's ability to uh, install a, a young, charismatic intelligent uh, leader uh, for the Tory party, uh, you know, to, to continue the conservative party dominance in uh, the UK. Yeah, like Boris Johnson. But yeah, uh, uh, right. A young, <laughs> talented, charismatic man like Boris Johnson. Right. That, that's yeah. that's where the, the humor comes in here for for mogmentum is what they're now calling it. Uh, uh, but but it looks like the Tories days are numbered. So with that being said, you spent some time in Manchester, both during the party conference and during the World Transformed conference as well. Tell us a little bit about your experience there. Um, you uh, had quite quite a few conversations with some party insiders and the likes of John McDonnell and others who are leading this socialist drive inside and outside the party. Uh, tell us a little, a little bit about your experiences in Liverpool and uh, the kind of climate that you found there in terms of how they're addressing this challenge uh, that's that's on the horizon. Yeah. Uh, when uh, Corbyn uh, was elected as uh, leader of the Labour Party in 2015, that was before the referendum on Brexit, the first Labour Party conference, which was also in Liverpool in uh, two years ago, was euphoric uh, when after the referendum, I mean, he became leader in 2015, and then there was the referendum and the Labour Party MPs, most of whom uh, did not want Corbyn and were constantly conniving against him. I use the phrase very often, borrowed from the great British historian E.P. Thompson, they were leaking into the public urinal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, and their main uh, uh, sites for doing that were usually The Guardian and the BBC, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, since uh, those are the more progressive sites of the British media that listen to uh, mainstream Labour MPs. Uh, and they were constantly leaking about how uh, either... Uh, absurdly radical he was or how incompetent he was, and especially their unhappiness uh, with his being moderate on the question of Brexit. 
uh, he voted to remain because it was being led by a xenophobic campaign against immigrants. Uh, but he had voted against joining the European Union as a young man in the mid-1970s and as a supporter of the socialists left inside the Labour Party who were not against the European Union on xenophobic grounds, um, on, on the grounds of what is often called in Britain fish and chips nationalism, um, but rather on the grounds that it would restrict the ability of a, a radical socialist labor government uh, to be able to see through a set of structural reforms that would lead on to a post-capitalist society. And they were right in that respect. Uh, I mean, there were all kinds of other constraints apart from the EU, of course, but that was a significant one. So, you know, he, he was not an enthusiast for the European Union, and it's become all the more neoliberal in the decades since. That said, because it was the campaign against the European Union was at that time being led by the xenophobic right, he voted to remain. But he, he you know, uh, he made it clear uh, that he wasn't a fan of the European Union as it was constructed and needed a lot of change. And this drove the right-wing Labour MPs to distraction. They are not only anti-socialist, they're only strong ideological convictions are to remain inside the American empire and to remain inside the European Union. That's what presents them to some extent themselves as progressive internationalists. And so they turned on Corbyn and tried to overthrow him. Astonishingly, I mean, the vast majority of, of labor MPs signed a letter after a meeting of the Parliamentary Labor Party in which they traduced him in the most ugly and disrespectful of terms. He then came out of Parliament after that meeting to see tens of thousands of people standing in Westminster Square, organized by Momentum, uh, praising him and cheering him. And that's the kind of thing that gave him courage. So there was a second election, and he was re-elected as leader with an even a bigger majority um, by the party membership and by supporters who joined the party uh, and by the unions. Uh, so the this the first conference that was in Liverpool uh, was a tremendous celebration of that reinforced victory of this new leadership. Last year's conference uh, was a celebration of how well uh, the Corbyn-led Labour Party, with, as you say, its radical anti-austerity manifesto, did in the snap election that the May Tories uh, called uh, uh, last year. You know, he was running in the polls, at 20, the party was running at some 25%, and they ended up with 40% as the manifesto uh, uh, galvanized opinion in Britain. And as Corbyn's anti-politician aura caught on with so many people as well. Mm -hmm. Now that now that manifesto was leaked to the public, perhaps by party insiders. Some of the, it was. They the thought people it would who be a more, more <laughs> leaking into the public urinal, as it were, and that that too has backfired. Uh, and that turned, backfired terribly. And yeah. they now had to. After that, of course, uh, Corbyn's leadership is unassailable within the party, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and they don't even raise policy issues very much. Mm -hmm. uh, they are constantly going on, of course, about him not being strong enough on Brexit, and they, what they want is him to support a second referendum, which would put him in a campaign along with the City of London, the big banks, the big multinational corporations, to undo Brexit. 
Uh, so there would be this cross-class alliance, mm-hmm. um, which would alienate uh, all of those working-class voters who uh, see Brexit as representing uh, not only what is appealed to them by the right as something to do with immigrants, but as see the European Union as associated with neoliberal capitalist politics. Because, it, you know, it was the center-right and center-left politicians in those parties who, you know, brought you neoliberalism through Thatcherism and then through the embrace of the European Union. So, you know, this is, it, it would be, a, a it, it, it's a tremendous bind that the Corbyn leadership is also caught in, if you like. And uh, the center-right PLP now restricts itself very largely to picking away at that sore. And you'll find that in The Guardian and the BBC constantly in its, uh, well, along, of course, with anti-Semitism, with this, absurd, uh, this absurd, cynical charge of anti-Semitism against Corbyn. The poppy um, smears coming from the fur- further to the right, but I'm sure uh, people on, on the PLP and the mainstream labor center are, are loving that as well in terms of painting yeah. him as this barbaric, uh, anti-patriotic, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think radical. that's probably over because his speech to the Labor Party conference was – gave, you know, 500 words, the largest portion of the speech to, you know, speaking of the Labour Party as the leading anti-racist institution in Britain uh, through the 20th century to today, and his own uh, long and very, very impressive anti-racist record with the most fulsome pledges to the Jewish community in Britain uh, against uh, any acts of anti-Semitism, which no one could mistake. Much later in the speech, he said that he even supported a two-state solution, as he always had, uh, but he supported Palestinian rights, as he always had, and one of the first things a labor government would do would be to recognize the Palestinian state. But he didn't tie those two portions of the speech together. It wasn't, I support everything we can do to prevent anti-Semitism in Britain, but I like the Palestinian. On the contrary, it was two principled statements, and he is a very principled person. And I think that this probably has, has put an end to this, although people will still you know, keep at it. But it was he handled that so well uh, that it'll be hard to imagine they can continue with this calumny. So uh, the main thing now is, is how they stand on Brexit. And this is not easy. It really, really is not easy. I, it, it's clear to me that the Corbyn leadership, the core of it, and the left-wing union leadership would like the Brexit thing to be over. Uh, I think they uh, privately would like May to work out by March uh, next year, when it uh, uh, unless there's a further delay negotiated with the Europeans, uh, when it's it, it designed to be over, that they've got an exit strategy going uh, that's accepted by the Europeans. I think Labour would like that to happen. That said, uh, and I think they, they were hoping it would happen until the last week or two. That said, their position has to be uh, that what they would prefer, of course, and I think they also would prefer this, would be a general election. And uh, I think what, what they would achieve were they elected a government would be not all that difficult from what May has achieved. Achieve may be the wrong word, what she has had to settle for. Right. Yeah. <laughs> As yeah. she's had to cope with what would be the mess of the disentanglement from the European Union were there to be uh, no uh, 
uh, deal made. And, you know, Corbyn has made it clear all along that he, uh, that what labor would do would be negotiate a customs union, you know, which would mean that be a common tariff that Britain would subscribe to, a common trade policy, without having the single market where there are completely open flows of capital, which has always been the objective of capitalists in the European Union. And, of course, what any socialist wants, really, what any serious Democrat should want, is the ability to control what's invested, where it's invested, how it's invested, etc. Not only in terms of flows in and out of the country, uh, but in terms of uh, investments inside the country, since that affects all of our lives. So the absolute free movement of capital, which the single market gives you, is something that uh, they would not want. Similarly, he's made it clear that while they would be much more progressive on migration and refugees than most governments in the European are, the European Union are, they don't want the type of migration that is being brought in as cheap labor, as undermining uh, labor standards. So that for reason that too, they also don't want the single market there. They also want to be able to use government subsidies to uh, encourage certain types of investment. And that, too, is very difficult under the European Union. Now, you know, all that said, it's not the regulations of the European Union that are the most uh, powerful force preventing a progressive, let alone a socialist Britain. The most powerful force is financial capital inside Britain itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The balance of class force. <laughs> With its international ties. The accumulation strategies uh, inside yeah, the state. That, right. that is a much bigger ogre that needs to be taken on, a much greater power that needs to be taken on. Um, so trying to negotiate this, I think that, you know, what May has won from the Europeans while not going as far as as Corbyn would like in terms of, in fact, you know, they would probably adopt some of these restrictions on any government putting restrictions on capital. Labor would like a customs union, but free of the single market for other reasons, for more progressive reasons. Now, they can't say this, of course, because they, you know, want a government uh, that they would lead that would replace the Tory government. And it would, you know, put together a better deal. But I think they were privately hoping that were there not to have to be an election, uh, and I still still think they may be privately hoping this, that, you know, what May has ended up with would end the thing. My own view is that this will never end. That this uh, attempt to exit the ties with Europe is a complete pipe dream. And, you know, in when uh, the Quebec independence movement was so strong in Canada through the 19, from the 70s to the 1990s, a documentary was made by Paul Jay, who now heads up the real news, called Never Endem Referendum. <laughs> Turned out <laughs> to be a prescient. Another, <laughs> hey. Whether there's another referendum or not uh, around Brexit, I think that this whole thing is never going to end. It is just going to be a continuing, confused element in British politics for the next decade. Uh, and Labour is going to have to cope with this as a government. Are these trade relationships are, are really just kind of, uh, you know, 
temporarily formalized expressions of the balance of, 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 of forces, uh, not only class forces, but national forces inside the EU and otherwise. And so very to, well put to exactly. say that to say that we're we'll sort of smooth those over once and for all and do away with German dominance in that region is is it's just it, it is a pipe dream I, I really like the way you're laying this out it's really kind of making me sort of uh, think about this in a, in a new light in terms of how uh, how how uh, seem a kind of semi-permanent this crisis is and will be and in the way it's going to affect and impact british politics for the foreseeable future perhaps for a lifetime yeah and i i think that the lead that's very well put adam and i think what has to say that uh, that is not recognized sufficiently on the British left, including in the leadership of the Labour Party. Hmm. So uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's optimism, notwithstanding about the Conservative Party's ability to withstand uh, the challenge, uh, the challenges faced by Theresa May and, and her inability to uh, catalyze her own party for the task of Brexit, there probably will be something like an election in the coming months. The Labour Party, as I mentioned previously, has been a government in waiting for quite some time. They have operated quite laudably, I would say, in terms of trying to prepare themselves to the best of their ability for the tremendous challenges ahead. I'm sure that you yourself have some some criticisms of how that's gone and how that's how that, that that's going to continue to proceed once they do get into government. But uh, you you and Sam Gendon have provided a, quite a service to that to that to those efforts. In a recent book that you uh, expanded from a previous uh, pamphlet that is out from Merlin Press, it's available in the United States uh, as we speak from bookshops and uh, sellers online. It's called The Socialist Challenge Today, Syriza Sanders Corbin. And that coincides with an essay that uh, you and Sam Gendon have uh, written for Red Pepper Magazine in the UK. That essay is called In and Against the State. I'll make that essay available to people in the show notes should they want to read it. And and you and they should. You should read that. It's a very excellent summary of the contradictions and challenges uh, that, that will be faced by the uh, labor government uh, should, they, uh, should they find themselves in power in the coming months. And it seems very likely that they will. Now, this trajectory of the, the your latest uh, small book that you and Sam have written is, is really insightful. Uh, as the a subtitle would suggest Syriza Sanders Corbin. And we'll leave the Sanders moment out for the time being because I want to talk about the, U- the U.S. in context of the latest Socialist Register, which is also uh, to be released very soon in uh, the, the coming month or so. That Socialist Register is uh, focused on the world turned upside down, question mark, in terms of the way that neoliberalism and globalization has spawned a series of xenophobic and reactionary movements across the world, some of which we have spoken to in the UK context, but it's also produced sparks and shoots on the socialist left uh, globally, uh, some of the, some of which we're, we're talking about quite explicitly right now. But let's get back to your Socialist Challenge Today book. Uh, but I think this trajectory you draw, you and Sam draw from the series I experience uh, is quite valuable. And if there is something in, in terms of, at least in my estimation, that is universally misunderstood on the on the socialist left globally right now are the stakes and the failures of the series experiment and i think you and sam draw out some very key uh, crucial lessons about how to interpret that series a moment in order to try to overcome some of those pitfalls and challenges in the coming years in the british context what are some of those lessons that people should uh, be thinking most most closely about in terms of uh, today's context uh, you know, lessons and, but maybe to be more honest, dilemmas. And, and it, link, it, it 
it links up with how you started formulating uh, this, Adam, which was there's probably going to be an election in Britain in the coming months. Uh, that's not so clear. One would want it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that a great many people who are supporting the Corbyn leadership uh, would want it uh, because it's so necessary to bring to an end uh, this vicious austerity that has been visited on the people and that is blowing up in, of course, their faces, in the Tories' faces uh, as, as we speak. So people want it desperately, um, and it's not so clear that there will be one in the British case for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that the thing that the uh, Tory party is united on, that the British media is largely united on, and uh, that the British capitalist class is united on, is that uh, something worse than the uh, contradictions of Brexit is Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister of Britain and John McDonald, Chancellor of the Exchequer. This is one of the things that holds them together. Uh, It's one of the things that may prevent 48 uh, Tory MPs calling, which is the minimum you need, calling for Theresa May to go Hmm. and forcing that to happen. Interesting. And there's another reason, of course, which is that you have to have a two-thirds vote in the House of Commons um, under uh, legislation that was introduced uh, about a decade ago in order to have a vote of non-confidence in the government, which forces an election. So you don't think the Lib Dems will go for that in order to stay well, off they, uh, they the would. Corbyn government? The, the, the Tories may not Okay. Uh, on a vote of confidence. So, so they may they may go down with the ship, so to speak. I mean, I think that's so, one, well, one of no, the. Well, no, no. That means that they can stay in government until twenty twenty two. And and uh, I think that some of the cooler heads in the Labour Party are hoping for that. Uh, that's ironic in a way, right? right. But uh, we'll have to talk about this because this is really the crucial set of questions come up around this. Um, uh, is is the Corbyn leadership uh, ready to be the kind of radical socialist government that is so badly needed? So this brings this brings me to the Syriza thing, right? Should the Labour Party uh, go, uh, leadership right now should they be in a hurry? Because bringing us to Syriza, that is the key question you raise here. But it's a dilemma. It, but it's a dilemma, Adam. It, it's it's not only you know something to which there's an obvious answer. Right, right. It's a terrible dilemma. Uh, what brought Syriza to the fore? Nobody practically noticed them around the world. Right, right. You know, Cyprus had run a good campaign for mayor of Athens in 2008. They had supported the great student strike that year under his leadership. They had supported the Occupy demonstrations in Syntagma Square. Uh, You know, this was noticed on our kind of left. Uh, But nobody noticed them until in the 2012 election, in the run-up to it, Cyprus said, we are prepared to form, in a televised debate, we are prepared to form a government with anybody who will join with us in order to stop the torture. The torture of the Euro- that European Union was visiting upon uh, Greece, driving it into uh, depression conditions. And uh, he was then thinking of the Communist Party, of course. 
which wants nothing except to hold on to its ghetto of 5% of the Greek population and wants no responsibility at all for anything. Uh, and lo and behold, by saying that, this propelled Syriza into a plausible vote for people who were so alienated from the previous left-center government, PASOK, and the modernizers who'd broken away from it and from Syriza who were looking for a third way. So suddenly, there was Syriza in 2012 on the verge of getting elected. They didn't, uh, but it meant that they were now the government-in-waiting. And they turned all of their attention to getting elected. They did very well in the European elections. And all of their attention was focused not on how do we develop the capacity to build the structural conditions at the base uh, in, in Greek society so that when we get into government, we have the capacity to change the state in a way that will get us out of neoliberal capitalism. If need be, will get us out of the European Union. Instead, they were stuck with the position of, we will stop the economic policy that the European Union is forcing on us, but we will not leave the European Union. And they themselves were strongly committed Europeans and didn't want to leave the leadership. Uh, but more than that, they never would have gotten elected since no Greeks wanted to leave virtually. So they were living in this dream world that they would scare the Europeans into changing their attitude because if they would stand up to them, then the Spanish and the Italians and the Portuguese would stand up to them, etc. And the Europeans, of course, were able to isolate them by buying Italian and Spanish and Portuguese bonds, but not buying Greek bonds by providing them with a quantitative easing from the central bank, but not providing the Greeks with that, except on a drip feed basis overnight, once Syriza got elected. And they hadn't built the capacity to change state institutions, nor to develop the kind of support in society, so that people were doing more than just demonstrating in the street. Now, the danger there, you see a dilemma. You see that well-meaning socialists desperately want to get into the state because they know there's no other way to stop neoliberal austerity unless you do that. On the other hand, getting into the state with only that and without either a strategic capacity or a capacity in the population to see through, uh, not or, and the capacity in the population to see through that, you get caught in the contradictions yourself. That's what Syriza faced. I was angry with those people who, when they got caught in that contradiction, having stood up to the European Union, but were faced with, okay, get out, which is what the Germans finally said to them after they won a referendum saying, look, we have 60% part of the people in saying they don't want us to accept what you're trying to force us. They said, well, in that case, leave. Of course, they put it in terms of leave the Eurozone, leave the currency zone, but you can't just leave the Eurozone. Um, you have to have import controls and capital controls if you do that. Uh, you can't run the uh, Greek economy on olive oil. You need to be able to import petrol uh, or gas. 
and they would have then you know had to have found support from uh, the Iranians or the Russians or the Chinese, all of whom hadn't shown much support. But in any case, as a member of NATO, that would have led not only to you know, all of the disruptive consequences economically of leaving the EU, it would have led to a confrontation with the military probably, you know, aided and abetted by the American military and security apparatuses. None of the left wanted to discuss that. It was simply they had capitulated. Rather than being sympathetic with their dilemma, and the dilemma was, do you get into government so quickly that you haven't prepared either your own base or even your own strategic orientation to be able to do something more than uh, stop the bleeding. Uh, because without doing more, you can't even stop the bleeding. Your emphasis on the geopolitical elements of, of the series of conflict is is really important there. It's really crucial. It's one that the, the international left has not taken seriously enough. Uh, that That's for sure. Again, folks should check out the uh, recent little book, uh, that you and Sam Ginnon have pr- produced. It's called The Socialist Challenge today for a fleshed out version of what you just put forward. Um, a lot of really important dilemmas and contradictions there that will be faced by the British government or, or any any state uh, that, that attempts a democratic transition to socialism or even even a sort of milquetoast social democracy in the, in the North American context in the face of this neoliberal uh, onslaught. That is to say, though, that some of the most poignant commentator, uh, commentators on the Brexit situation and the, and the financial aspects of this crisis, say Kostas Lapovitsis, for example, has been one of the foremost commentators on this. Uh, he, I believe he's written a piece for New Left Review or elsewhere. I'm not quite sure. I'll, I'll correct myself in the show notes and link that there. For he he had a piece in the same red pepper uh, that you just told your listeners about okay. that Okay. That, that uh, Sam and Mai's piece right. against the state was on, and, yeah. and not to and not to denigrate Costas, he's an, he's a great scholar. He's written quite a bit about the financialization of capitalism. But I think it's safe to say that you and uh, Costas found yourselves on somewhat opposite sides or opposing sides, in in a sense, with the series of context. Uh, he was one of the few who were pushing for a hard Grexit of sorts. One that was perhaps yeah. not quite attuned to the com- complexities and the contradictions of addressing the balance of class forces inside the EU and what it would mean to go it alone should a state break away. Yeah, I I think that's very perceptive. And all of the left everywhere uh, needs to think this through. Costas was, and and the American left does too, in, 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 of course, different contexts. Costas was absolutely right in his analysis of the European Union. And he was absolutely right that the series of leadership was naive about it. Naive in the sense that if they presented a kind of Paul Krugman, Joe Stiglitz for why neoliberal or even uh, Summers case for why neoliberal austerity was counterproductive in capitalist terms, even in capitalist terms, uh, that they would see the logic of this. And Costas understood very well that that wasn't going to work. And he was right. And he understood very well what the European Union is as uh, a neoliberal agent is uh, that because the balance of forces in the most powerful countries of Europe make it that way, right. Germany and France and Northern European countries in general, um, including the Scandinavian ex-social democratic ones. Um, he was right about that. Uh, the problem is that with so many economists on the left, these guys are policy wonks. 
that is, the solution is, you know, that we have a plan B, and that plan B is simply to drop out of the euro currency, uh, and we will issue our own currency. But this is a policy proposal that uh, is not related to what is needed in terms of the transformation of the Greek state once it goes out of the European Union and tries to exit a contemporary, uh, the contemporary capitalist conjuncture, nor is it thought through in terms of how do you build support inside Greek society for leaving the European Union. You know, uh, he was part of the left platform. He was its most articulate spokesman inside Syriza. He was elected as a Syriza uh, member of parliament. They split away after Syriza was forced to accept the latest memorandum. And uh, they, you know, can't get uh, enough votes even to get a single MP, <laughs> uh, which, was, which was previously the case with Antarsia, which is a, a umbrella group of far-left groups, more Trotskyist-oriented. And you see that as well in the extent to which the left platform was least interested in the question of how do we go about democratizing state institutions? You know, again, it was simply a matter of here's a policy, the state will impose it. It, it is not a question of democratizing the state for them. Uh, in that sense, it's a reflection of an old type of left politics that led us to some of the authoritarian regimes that socialism spawned in the 20th century. Uh, but it's also not a politics that validates the uh, participatory thrust of so much of the left uh, in the first two decades of the 20th century, of the 21st century, and turns them in a productive way towards okay, how do we democratize state institutions? You know, the left platform was least interested in the solidarity networks in uh, Greece. Uh, where there was a great deal of self-organization in terms of health clinics, food distribution, and so on. They saw that, saw that as charity mandates mm -hmm, mm -hmm. rather than as a new form of democratic politics that was crucial to transforming consciousness and capacities and practices. So the critique is not at the level of the policy he was pushing is in some fundamental way wrong. It's rather that it was just too policy-oriented and, of course, too short-termist uh, in that, you know, the grounds had not been prepared for it inside Syriza or inside Greek society. As you suggested, these policies seem to lack a foundation in the political sphere and the balance of forces inside and outside the country. Uh, that's, I think that's, you know, this is why I raised this question of, of, of Lapovitsis in, in terms of how he's swooped into the British context. Uh, where he is located, it's not that you know his intervention is uh, you know unwarranted or illegitimate. He he teaches in in uh, in Britain. Yeah, uh, he's very much embedded in that political context. But that's to say that he has now sort of been elevated as one of the leading speakers on what on the kind of policies that need to be adopted by the Corbyn government uh, should they face the Brexit negotiating table in the coming months or years. Well, and I think it's a little bit uh, troubling, I have to say. I, I, I When I saw his piece in Red Pepper, uh, I read it. It was, I think, as you rightly point to, it was spot on in terms of the correctness of the policy and the analysis of finance and financialization. But I'm concerned that we are setting ourselves up uh, for a repeat on the left of the Greece 
scenario, that we're not grounding ourselves in the democratization and the transformation of the institutions of the state and uh, in society at large. That is my concern in the yeah. British case. Yeah. And I think it reflects weaknesses in the Corbyn leadership and weaknesses on the part of those who have been so actively mobilized to get him elected and to keep him as leader and to get him the vote he did in the last election and who will play the crucial role in uh, mobilizing that vote in the next one. I think it reflects weaknesses both in leadership and at that level and at a much more popular level, in other words. Um, and, and then I think it also reflects the weaknesses of the socialist punditry, to use your term, uh, the very live pundit society <laughs> that you find on the left uh, all over the Internet. That's right. Who I think would be all too quick to start using words like betrayal and capitulation, not appreciating the extent of the dilemma. So, you know, for if the left were to be enthusiastic in a naive, naive way about a Corbyn government, as they were in a naive way about a Syriza government, not appreciating the dilemmas, uh, even while being excited that such a government should get elected as opposed to a xenophobic right-wing government and see that as opening possibilities, but nevertheless just being elated about it. And then as soon as they faced any problems and contradictions uh, and weren't able to see through the most radical policy one would like them to be able to take within a uh, reasonable framework, uh, turning on them, it is the worst possible outcome. Uh, you give up the fight before it's over. You know, there are those in Syriza who were very upset in, uh, when, when uh, Cyprus was forced to back down by the Europeans, but who didn't leave Syriza, as uh, most of the socialists left did, uh, and have been fighting inside Syriza to make Syriza again. <laughs> Syriza be Syriza again. That may be necessary in the British Labour Party. I mean, the point is, we are engaged in a long, we're, we're engaged in a long-term strategy. And the crucial thing needs to be not only to try to get into government and prepare as one best can and have a long-term strategy for what you would do by way of a series of structural reforms over two, three governments, but to change the Labour Party so that it becomes an organizing and educative agency inside British society that is able to survive the inevitable contradictions and reversals that a labor government will face. And that has not been done. That has not been achieved. There are steps that we can talk about that are promising in that respect, but, but that has hardly yet been achieved. And that is what is perhaps not being paid attention to enough by people in Britain uh, including uh, very impressive radical ones who are full of policy radicalism uh, in terms of capital controls or, you know, let's socialize the city of London as if this could be done on the morrow of the election without thinking through the politics of how you get there. 
Sorry, I just remembered that I hit the table again <laughs> as I was emphasizing my points. Quite all right. Uh, you're, you're a passionate commentator. Uh, it's what it happens. Uh, don't, I don't want to tame that, uh, as, <laughs> as though I could. Uh, anyway, uh, so you, you spoke of some of the steps in terms of democratizing the institutions and society at large. Uh, your piece in uh, Red Pepper ended against the state, as it suggests is a callback to a kind of a uh, Gorzian, Polancian uh, approach to looking at the state as a field of struggle and its institutions as expressions or condensations of the balance of class forces in that particular social formation. And so that's to say that you're settling in for the long haul of what will inevitably be ultimately a conflict uh, with capital. Uh, but in order to set ourselves up to, to be successful in that conflict, uh, we have a lot of work to do. Um, I encourage people, again, for the third time in the episode thus far, go out and pick up this book, The Socialist Challenge Today. It's really important. The first couple of chapters uh, frame they frame the theory and the uh, sort of approach, the politics of this, of this attempt, uh, what we have called here the democratic transition to socialism, the democratic road to socialism, as Nikos Palantzis uh, himself referred to it and others in the, in the left Eurocommunist tradition, which itself uh, had a series of dilemmas that they failed to overcome. Uh, but we are very much inheritors of that moment and those dilemmas in, in a new light. So let's move on to that context that we find ourselves in. The Socialist Register for 2019 is focused on these transformations uh, that we're facing here in neoliberalism and globalization and some of the blowback, the xenophobia and the reaction to these kind of uh, movements today. Not only Trumpism, but you see uh, see this playing out in Brazil and Bolsonaro. And you have uh, Alf Alfredo Sadfilo and other contributors speaking to that moment quite eloquently. I'm perusing the table of contents of this year's register, this coming year's register. And I got to tell you, uh, this looks to be one of the best yet. A lot of really important contributions to the state of politics across the world. The likes of yourself and Sam Gindin, I, I mentioned Alfredo Sadfilo, Ray Kiley is uh, talking about Trumpism, paleoconservatism and neoliberalism. Uh, contribution from Doug Henwood on Trumpism, the new billionaire class. Uh, Nicole Ashkoff, uh, former editor over at Jacobin. Many people will be familiar with her. The list goes on and on. A lot of important contributions. What was your thinking behind this volume of the register? I know this was laid out in a five-year plan some years ago, but it's come to fruition in a quite prescient and important conjuncture in, in world history. Uh, tell us a little bit about this volume and, and what kind of con contribution you think it makes. Well, uh, it is trying to get at uh, the way in which neoliberal ideology, if not practice, has been uh, undermined by the long decade of crisis after that exploded in 2008. Even as economic growth returned in a synchronized way to the global capitalist economy 10 years later, uh, what you saw was the explosion of the political crisis of neoliberal globalization. And uh, we were trying to trace, uh, as we did in an earlier volume in 2016, but in a much, uh, on, uh, which was on uh, the rise of the right, but in a much broader way uh, now, we were trying to trace the way in which into the vacuum of uh, the delegitimation of neoliberal ideology, have stepped uh, nationalist movements, which are anti-globalist, at least uh, in their 
rhetoric and ideology to some extent in their practice uh, in contradictory ways. Uh, but we were also trying to look at uh, the question of whether, in fact, as a lot of the left thinks in a mirror image of Trumpism, uh, that the American empire is in decline. Um, you know, if, if it's about Trump saying make America great again, the left would say, well, that is happening because America is a declining imperial power very rapidly. And we're trying to show that the and we're trying to look at not so much so the extent to which that's true. Uh, so it involves also examining uh, whether it's the case that the United States, its economy and its state is less central uh, to the reproduction of global capitalism and accumulation within it. Uh, we're trying to look at, is it true that there's been a shift from the so-called global north to the global south, from the American empire to the new Chinese empire, etc.? And look very soberly at the contradictions of China in the current context uh, and the limits of China in the current context. And what an irony it is that it is China that is asking the United States to play a responsible role in the management and reproduction of global capitalism. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah, a lot of key contributions there from uh, Sean Storrs, a former, uh, a former colleague of mine and student of yours. At York University, a really important contribution there. Uh, can China unmake the American making of global capitalism? A mouthful there, but it alludes to exactly what you just talked about. A contribution from Lin Chun on uh, China's new globalization. A lot of important questions about the BRICS. Uh, this is a topic that I talked about with Alex Hockley in, in, in the, the Brazilian context about how the collapse of the BRICS as a alleged counter-hegemonic strategy has resulted in authoritarian regimes in Brazil and elsewhere. And of course, perhaps that was more of an illusion than anything that the BRICS were trying to constitute a counter-hegemonic bloc against so-called American-style capitalism. And that brings us to kind of where we are with our discussion of, of Corbyn and, uh, and the lessons, or at least the dilemmas to be appreciated from what's happened in Syriza, which is how difficult it is for these right-wing forces and uh, China with its rather venal communist capitalist ruling class now, uh, to disentangle itself from global capitalism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so what you see is the difficulties of the right uh, in terms of disentangling themselves from yeah, global capitalism. Right, right. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, that was the case, of course, with the PT in Brazil. Uh, and and uh, that... The inability, even the lack of interest in disentangling on, on the part of the Lula-led governments uh, was one of the reasons they were engaged in promoting Brazilian multinational capital, Brazilian international capital, uh, to accumulate outside of Brazil. You know, they wanted to compete better within global capitalism with the aid of the state. And the Brazilian case, doing that with the aid of the state, did enmesh them in all kinds of corrupt practices. I mean, it's kind of sickening that over 70% of Brazilians think that the worst of the corrupt forces in Brazil is the Workers' Party. That's, of course, not true. It's what you get from watching the global media empire in Brazil. That said, it is true that there were plenty of traces of the Brazil government's enmeshment in corrupt practices as they promoted through the state, through state uh, uh, investment agencies, 
the transnational accumulation of Brazilian corporations and capitalists. So stressing this is very important in terms of we really need to be working on the type of left strategy that can indeed disentangle from global capitalism um, in a long-term sense through structural reforms uh, inside each state and through a, a international strategy that tries to build support for that in other states. Um, and, and the central conclusion of Sam's and my little book is that socialist internationalism today needs to be very present, very prominent in our strategy, but it has to be oriented to creating as much space through international support for there to be a shift of the balance of forces to the left in every state. The tragedy of Syriza was that the Northern European labor movements and left parties didn't raise a finger to help them, uh, to create space for them. And, you know, the internationalism we need is one that is oriented in that direction. And, you know, I think that that's the conclusion we need to draw about the way these two things come together. Spot on. I think, you know, these these countries that aren't facing a crisis have dilemmas of their own in terms of does does the working class oftentimes, particularly in northern Europe, uh, who are engaged in these corporatist arrangements with their own state and capital formations? Uh, do they look out for their own uh, short term and medium term interests and turn their backs on their comrades in the south and, and, and in the UK as they face the uh, the full thrust and weight and force of global uh, finance capital in the coming years? Or uh, or will they reach out and, and, and engage in some kind of solidaristic activity? It's hard to say exactly what that's going to look like. Right well, now. and, um, you know, this is the importance of what you're doing and, and, and people like you are doing. It, 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 this requires political education um, of the most fundamental and broad kind. I was told by a very impressive uh, German trade union leader in, in, you know, what had been West Germany, not in, what, in East, East Germany. Uh, that he was extremely supportive of the Syriza government, uh, um, but that were he to uh, try to talk to his members about opposing what the German government was was forcing on uh, them, they would turn on him because they had racist attitudes to Southern Europeans. Uh, you know, they saw them as a bunch of lazy people who don't work hard, whereas in fact, Southern Europeans work many more hours than do European uh, people every year on multiple jobs, much less protections, et cetera, et cetera. And that's also true in Scandinavia. Now, this is a product of that type of racism, let alone the racism against people coming from North Africa uh, to Europe, et cetera. That type of racism within Europe is a product of the loss of capacity of the trade union movement and of the social democratic parties and the communist parties to develop a political consciousness in the people who uh, uh, they organized and mobilized in previous generations. And it's very important that those capacities in the new type of socialism that is emerging um, with the new generations who are very much oriented to being anti-racist are sufficiently not embedded in a class politics, unfortunately. That needs to be developed. And it, it's crucially important that that happens. Right, right. 
Absolutely. I think it's important that we're getting these politics out there. I have to say, you know, I mean, just to just to have one further uh, topic, small topic and provocation uh, before I let you go here. You've been very generous with your time. But I just have to say, you know, you know, four or five years ago, I had to look far and wide to find you, Leo. <laughs> you know, uh, your presence on, on the Internet uh, as, as, a, as a millennial, millennial adjacent myself uh, was somewhat limited. You know, you had a couple talks on YouTube and, and your books, of course, were highly accessible. Uh, but but one, one thing that we should uh, and you yourself should, should be very proud of and, and take a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of optimism from is the fact that I think these this set of politics, this analysis is, is more widely available on the socialist left than ever. And it's not just, you know, listeners of this show uh, who are who are propagating that, but it's people who are embedded in some of the most important movements across the world right now. And I think, I, I th- you know, it's, it's easy to be feel a little beaten down from time to time uh, in our era, but uh, we should all take heart in that. And I, I would encourage people to, to buy this book, organize study groups around it, start talking about these dilemmas and contradictions in very serious ways and in, in thinking about how people can orient in their own local and regional and national contexts to try to overcome some of these structural dilemmas. Because the moralism and the scolding that goes on on the international left is just simply not up to the task of, of facing down these challenges. Um, but, but it's encouraging. I'm seeing a lot of people reading your work and engaging with it very critically and very seriously. And, and then also just kind of regurgitating it in a very knee jerk, commonsensical sort of way, uh, which is, which is really good. It's really important and really exciting. Well, I appreciate that, Adam, but I hope they don't regurgitate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what do they say? Imitation is the uh, the highest form of flattery, or something like that. I'm not quite sure if the, if, if I. On the contrary, the, the 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 point <laughs> of all of this should precisely be uh, for people to develop the self confidence and the understanding of the contemporary conjuncture uh, that will see their democratic socialism through uh, from one conjuncture to another. Uh, you know, rather than uh, just opportunistically, um, uh, you get excited and disappointed, <laughs> um, uh, as, as inevitably happens. Yeah, we need to be in this for the long haul. And speaking of That's the long the- haul and being malleable and changing our analysis and updating things through the years, you and Colin Lees are in the uh, in the process of releasing the third edition to your The End of Parliamentary Socialism book. And the the, yeah. uh, the subheading there used to be From New Left to New Labor. But I presume you'll be taking that even further into the Corbyn moment in this upcoming edition that will be released next year. Yeah, we're playing with a new subtitle. We may call it From Ben to Blair to Corbyn. Huh. Um, That's nice. Uh, but uh, yeah, and, and you know, it's not often that a book first published two decades ago uh, you, that you get the publisher asking you to put out. It was, there was a second edition four years later after it was published to put out a third edition, but two decades after the first edition. And that's because, uh, it, you know, we were wrong. We tremendously admired the attempt by the socialist left of the 1970s to turn the Labour Party into a socialist party that stress the need to turn the party into an educative and mobilizing rather than just electoral force and stress the, stress the need to democratize the state, arguing that until you democratize the Labour Party, you couldn't transform the British state. 
that was right. Of course, it got defeated by a implacable, not only right-wing, old right-wing portion of the Labour Party, uh, but even by a left-wing, uh, center-left, um, and left union leadership that was afraid of splitting their own uh, organizations rather than see this through. And, you know, it was succeeded by the embrace of Thatcherism and of Clintonism by the Labour Party leadership under Blair, um, uh, who were fully, full-on uh, neoliberal. And and uh, to see now, you know, we wrote at that time, the end of parliamentary socialism meant that um, the mistaken uh, dogmatism around parliamentarist reform of the 20th century Labour Party, which was challenged and could have been succeeded by a radical, mobilizing, popular democratic socialism, which wasn't dogmatic about parliament. We were hoping that that would be the end of parliamentary socialism. It wasn't. With the defeat of the Benite movement, the Campaign for Labour Party Democracy, the Greater London Council, etc., it was succeeded by parliamentary capitalism, which is what you could call the third way or Blairism. And we said, you know, that's it. Socialists are going to have to build new organizations. Well, you know, uh, our generation of socialists failed to build new organizations. Um, and and the anti-globalization movement, the anti-war movement, that generation, your generation, uh, was not interested in parties for almost two decades. They were interested in protest. You know, the slogan behind the Zapatistas in Mexico that um, Holiday uh, used as the title of a book, Changing the World Without Taking Power. And people found, after a couple of decades of that, that you can protest until hell freezes over and you won't change the world. Right, right. Uh, so there was a return to parties. And uh, some of that took the form as taking the form of new parties, new parties on the left, like Syriza and Podemos. Uh, but it's also taking the form, most crucially, in the Labour Party, uh, of people going into the Labour Party, sometimes behind, as in the case of Corbyn and McDonald. The same people who, as young people, were engaged in the attempt to change the Labour Party into a mobilizing uh, uh, socialist party way back 40 years ago. And that's Corbyn and McDonald, who I've known since then. Um, and, and that's what's very exciting about this moment. So to my great surprise, you know, you go to Liverpool, or I do, and meet old young people, uh, young people who you know, uh, don't know anything of this history, old people who were driven out of the Labour Party way back in the early 1980s. And they walk up to me and they say, I've read your book. It's changed my life. And I say, which book? <laughs> you know, have you, have you read The Making of Global Capitalism? Or yeah. have you read The Socialist Challenge Today? And they say, no, yeah. I, I've read The End of Parliamentary Socialism. Right. Um, so it's that kind of thing that has led Verso to invite us to do a third edition. And um, it'll be out next fall in time for the next Labor Party conference. Well, that's exciting. I think that long view is really important in terms of assessing, you know, the prospects of the UK uh, Labor Party experiment that is that they're undergoing right now. Um, a lot, you know, so much that we have said uh, in this episode uh, all boils down to uh, one of your favorite lines that you quoted in a register some years ago. Um, 
that will will make the road. We shall make the road by walking it, or something like that. We shall make the path by walking it. Um, there's a there's a a certain kind of of um, you know radical openness and uh, eminence, uh, philosophically speaking, to this project that no one can really predict. But I think you're right to suggest that we all need to have um, the right roadmap to draw from and the right Very. the right kind of structural understanding of the forces at work uh, and, and the capacities that are required uh, not only on our side, but the capacities that can and will be wielded by the other side. And uh, so, you know, we, we, I think the left, you know, what I take from your work and, you know, and you can sort of uh, riff on this as we, as we sign off, what I take from your work is so essential is that, you know, we, we don't always, it's not a, we don't always know exactly which direction to go, but we, but what's important is that we have a, a a robust and intense understanding of the terrain, right? Uh, because various paths and uh, prospects will be foreclosed upon and the contradictions will, you know, will face the backlash of contradictions. But if we have a robust understanding of the terrain, we'll be uh, adaptable and we'll be malleable and we'll be ready uh, to face head on whatever comes our way in the coming years ahead. That's a great way to conclude, Adam. Yeah, thank you. Very well. well. Hey, I, I learned it all from you. So well, most of it. <laughs> hard, hard. <laughs> what can I say? Hard. Much of it. So, uh, any parting words? Uh, I like to. I like to ask a, a key question here. Put my guests in the hot seat, or uh, oftentimes I'll invite them to to give a, a rallying uh, cr- cry to the barricades, as it were. But uh, oh, let let let's let's leave it at La Luta Continua. Uh, yeah, let's do the that. The struggle continues. The struggle continues. There you have it. People check out The Socialist Challenge today by Leo Panich and his co-author Sam Gendon. Uh, people check out The uh, Socialist Register uh, 2019. Uh, that is out by Merlin Press. You can probably pick that up from the monthly review. Uh, if not now, then in the coming weeks ahead. Uh, a lot of really important contributions there. Leo Panich, thanks again for joining us on Dead Punnett Society. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother...